Welcome to the Alliance Safety and Loss Control Podcast, dedicated to bringing you insightful tips and strategies to help mitigate risk and help promote worksite safety one episode at a time. Good afternoon. My name is Tim Leach. I'm with Alliance Insurance Services, the Director of Risk Control Consulting. I want to welcome everybody to another specialty podcast. Today, we have John Owen and Steve Meglio. And we're going to be talking a little bit about OSHA's recently communicated national emphasis program for heat illness, indoor and outdoor. But before we get started, I'd like to uh, have John and Steve introduce themselves. Hi, I'm John Owen. I'm a certified industrial hygienist and a certified safety professional with Alliant. I've been here for about five years. Happy to be here. And good afternoon. My name is Stephen Meglio. I'm a risk control consultant with Alliant Insurance Services. I've uh, been in the industry for about five years. Uh, prior to that, I was a uh, combat medic in the U.S. Army, um, so I was EMT certified. Thanks, guys. Well, why, why heat illness? Well, over the last eight years, there's been about 3,500 incidents annually and about 144 fatalities, and there's an increasing concern because of climate change. Out of the last 19 summers, we've had 18 of those have had record heat. So OSHA's communicated this national emphasis program to, to address this uh, with employers throughout the country. So John, for our listeners there, what, what exactly is a national emphasis program? Yeah, so as you mentioned earlier, the national emphasis program that OSHA has, this particular one is focused on outdoor and indoor heat hazards. Uh, it actually kicked off on April 8th of 2022, and it's expected to go at least three years. Of course, it could be canceled or extended, or they could even supersede it. But really what it is, is it's the ability for OSHA through this program to have a nationwide enforcement mechanism to really proactively inspect the, the workplaces for heat-related illnesses. And this applies to general industry, maritime, construction, agricultural operations, and, and really what they're trying to do is to, to have a program in place where it's really encouraging those employers to evaluate their work areas and identify where they can uh, make some improvements and really protect the workers from, from heat-related illnesses. And, and with that in mind, the, the kind of the, the impact of this is the NEP or the, the National Emphasis Program for Heat is establishing heat priority days. So what happens then is, is when the heat index hits over 80 degrees or 80 degrees or higher, I should say, this is going to really trigger the National Emphasis Program, and OSHA will initiate compliance assistant related activities with targeted high-risk industries. They're also going to uh, continue to conduct the programmed or pre-planned inspections in targeted high-risk industries on any day in which the National Weather Service has announced a heat warning or advisory for the local area. So if there's the heat you know, advisory or warning, or we have the 80 degrees and higher, that's going to trigger this program. And as I kind of mentioned, this is going to apply primarily to really over, over 70 high-risk industries. And, and OSHA looks at this and they determine this based upon the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which includes data on incident rates of heat-related illnesses, the number of employee days away from work. They will look at uh, areas of elevated numbers of fatalities or hospitalizations as they're reported by uh, the employers. And, and obviously, if they've had any... Um, you know, high uh, frequency of heat-related uh, illnesses that they've maybe had violations against in the general duty clause, that may also trigger that, that inspection of that targeted industry. 
Well, that's a great, great uh, explanation of background. I appreciate it. Um, Steve, uh, it's great to have you on the staff with having the medical background really helps to round out our, our experience and diversity within the organization. So with that, what, what are some of the symptoms that you can expect with heat illness and what types of maybe acute and chronic or long-term injuries or illnesses can come out of heat exposure? Thanks, Tim. Uh, like I said before, you know, I was a combat medic in the military. Um, we dealt with a lot of heat injury related to temperatures, you know, either extreme cold or extreme heat. Um, so very familiar with a lot of the interactions and things that happen um, kind of when we're dealing with these extreme temperatures. Most of the things that we did were outdoors, right? We were in large metal vehicles. We were dealing with, you know, heavy equipment, lots of gear, things like that. So, you know, one of the main things that we, we try to do is train everybody on, you know, how to look for those signs and symptoms. And that's one of the biggest key points is, you know, being able to identify that and see that early on. Sometimes those workers, you know, they think, hey, I'll just push through it. I'll just keep working. They don't take that moment to kind of stop and take that little self-analysis of, you know, how am I doing? Am I capable of continuing on? Um, sometimes, you know, we think that we don't want to step up and say something because of maybe, you know, upsetting our superiors, especially if we're newer to the job site. And that's one of the big contributing factors is that acclimatization, right? For example, I live out here in Nevada. We have a lot of contractors that come out here to work and they're not used to this kind of weather. They're used to working in the cold, the snow, the ice. And it takes a little while for your body to adjust and adapt. On average, they say it takes you about 28 days or so to be able to adjust to that, you know, to acclimate to that weather. So, you know, what are some of the signs and symptoms that we see out there? Well, you know, we're going to see excessive sweating, right? Uh, we're going to see fatigue. We're going to see irritability, thirst, potentially nausea and vomiting. Um, one of the earliest steps that we see is uh, heat cramps. That's where we get that muscle abdominal cramping that happens, um, maybe spasms in the arms and legs and things like that. Uh, and then we move into heat exhaustion, and that's where we start seeing things where that fatigue really kicks in. You know, they start getting dizzy, lightheaded, uh, they're overly sweaty, right? You, know, you can tell when somebody's sweating normally and when they have that excessive amount of sweat coming off of them, right? Um, so those are one of those things that we can look for. Uh, and, you know, really, you know, what can we do in those situations? Well, really, it's all about having the steps in place and the controls in place to be able to address those issues, right? Do we have somewhere where we can take them that that's out of the sun, that we can cool them down, right? Do we have an area that's air conditioned? Uh, do we have ice packs available? Do we have water for cooling down, right? Even as much as just soaking their clothes and giving them that little bit of shade is enough to bring their temperature down quite a bit. Um, once we progress past that, we get into that heat stroke stage, right? And that's actually a medical crisis. So we want to call 911 when we get into that stage. Uh, that's where we're going to see things like altered mental status, right? They're confused. They're slurring their speech. Um, they may lose consciousness. They may go into seizures. You can feel on their body that they're at the very high temperatures. And again, you know, the practices that we put into place to kind of accommodate for that don't really change, right? The main things are going to be pull them out of that sun immediately, get them into the shade, start loosening clothing, add water, add ice pack. You know, one of the big things that happens when you're into that stage is that loss of electrolytes, right? You always hear those electrolyte things. People are drinking Gatorade all the time. Well, when we lose that sodium and potassium, right, because we're sweating excessively, we end up setting ourselves into some problems. So we will a lot of times initiate things like, you know, something as simple as Pedialyte adds those electrolytes back into the system, Gatorade, things like that. So we'll start out by saying, you know, can you drink anything? Here's some liquids and we can kind of push it into there. Um, if these things aren't treated, we can go all the way up to death. So these become real medical emergencies and we want to get these people checked out by medical professionals. Yeah, I'm always amazed um, at the trigger point being 80 degrees. 
always seems kind of low, you know, out here in Southern California and Palm Springs. And I grew up in the Central Valley. I mean, we would practice football at two o'clock on, you know, in the middle of the summer. John shaking his head because John and I actually lived, grew up in the same town and uh, they would keep us from drinking water. That was kind of a, a badge of honor or something like that, I guess. I don't know. But obviously, times have changed and that's a good thing. Um, in California, John, as you know, we have a heat illness standard, and so there's been some structure already established here in California. I think we're one of the few states, if not the only state, that has it. I haven't researched that so much, but I know you've been involved with other employers, assisted them with program development and implementation. Maybe you can talk about what are those components in California would, would really apply for, for the federal program, even though California programs really at this point just focused on outdoor. Uh, exposures. Yeah, so there's actually three states, at least per OSHA's information, that actually have heat-related standards. California being one, if you happen to live in Washington State or, or Minnesota, you also have those in place, at least according to, to what federal OSHA's indicated. When it comes to California, really what they did is they established a program specifically and a standard that's designed really about drinking water access, shade, cooling off periods. Uh, Stephen mentioned uh, acclimatization as well as high heat procedures. And what does that mean when we're in a high heat environment, the procedures? Obviously, when we get to that point and, and even in preparation for these potential emergencies is to know what the procedures are so that we, we know how to take care of those people. Stephen mentioned very quickly. And then of course, training of your employees. But what I'd like to do is to take a step back and just say, really, what we're trying to do is to make sure that you have elements of both the written plans that you have that are going to be effective, but you also have to, you know, combine that with your work practices. So, you know, for example, in California, they really suggest and recommend you've got to have a good communication strategy about what the, the plan is when we're going to be working in these heat environments. And for many employers, those need to be in both English and potentially in Spanish or the native language of the worker. So uh, keep that in mind when you're thinking about your plan is to make sure you've got it in a, in a communicating language that's understandable by those workers. Many times there's a proactive effort to, to monitor uh, the weather. So was mentioned, I said earlier that, that part of the trigger for this is the National Weather Service. So many organizations and Cal OSHA really encourages and wants to see people leveraging the National Weather Service to look for those heat waves or when we're going to see the potential for the heat uh, index to rise to a point where it's going to kick in to have a heat illness prevention program in place like it does in the state of California. So drinking water, having readily available access, but also enough of it, because if it's going to be a very hot day, you're going to go through a lot more water and you need to plan for that, for example having access to, to either a cooling area or a cool down area, shaded area, um, and making sure that all the employees can access it. And that's not necessarily talking about going to a vehicle either. So it's important to recognize some of these key components. You look at everything from physical exertion. So what are the people gonna be doing and for how long? Uh, I'll, I'll use an example. It wasn't uncommon when I've worked with others that they would look at the National Weather Service and when they saw that it was going to be um, above the high heat index, they really targeted what activities could be done at what times of the day. So obviously the most strenuous activities would be done below the 80 degrees. And once it got above 80, um, they would look at making changes to the actual work activities. And again, when we think about acclimatization, as, as Stephen mentioned, 
the heat wave component. So paying attention to the, the weather forecast. And really what we look at is, of course, above 80 degrees, but there's also a note within, you know, what the guidance that's provided that we should be looking at 10 degrees or higher, more than the average for a, a five-day period. So in the previous five days, you know, have we been 10 degrees or more above average? And this goes back to the ability of the individuals to handle that increased heat load as a part of their work activity. The high heat procedures are very specific and, and it's not, again, it's called out in California's and it's just really because we do get in the desert areas and the inland areas, we can very commonly get above 95 degrees. And that's where California has said, when we get to 95 degrees and greater, we're going to have to actually do a, an additional level of activity. So for example, you either need to have a buddy system for working so you can pay attention to each other and symptoms. You've got to have readily available ability to observe and communicate to individuals. You don't want workers working independently above 95 degrees. There has to be very much an emergency response plan that's established. So if someone does go, as Stephen mentioned, from cramps to very quickly elevating up to heat exhaustion and, and, and beyond, we want to make sure that we have plans in place that can get those first responders as quickly as possible and, and, and take care of those people before it gets to a point that it gets really bad. And so as a part of that, they require a emergency response procedure. And that's everything, including the location, but also directions, because sometimes, again, using agriculture, uh, there's no street signs and, and, you know, you can't really tell them the third tree on the right. Uh, so you have to think this through in advance. And California expects that of employers to have that in place. And I think these are very good, more planning for prevention and dealing with the emergency should they occur. And lastly, of course, is all the training. Your employees need to understand both your program, the symptoms, what does acclimatization mean? And how quickly can you lose acclimatization? If you go out on a vacation to somewhere cool, how long before you have to address that when the worker comes back? And so these are all put in place as key components of a, a true heat illness prevention program. Well, you guys have really covered a lot of information, a lot of ground here. I really appreciate uh, letting employers know what they need to do to prepare do you have any, either one of you have any last thoughts regarding uh, this topic before we close? Yeah, I'll go ahead and start. And, and what I want to emphasize is, is like other hazards that you all deal with in your workplaces, is this is about assessing the hazard in advance. You want to be proactive when it comes to heat because heat can affect an individual very quickly. And that's not the time to figure out what to do. So as I would, as I would encourage any employer you really should take a step back and look at the jobs, the activities, and really who is at risk within the organization for heat-related illness and exposure. And don't forget the emergency or the one-time activities, because I've dealt with that as well, where only one time, and it happened to be in the middle of summer during a particular event, did, did this happen, and they never had thought about heat illness. Once you've looked at those and assessed those jobs, I think it's really about getting back to that planning stage. It's looking at the, you know, what is the activity? When is it going to occur? Who is going to be exposed? And how are we planning for protection of those employees to address uh, the, the issues associated with heat? And, and a lot of the rest of it, we've kind of talked about the communication plan. So the employees are all in sync with what needs to be done, that you evaluate the activities that are going to occur and make sure that you're having changes to those activities. If it's going to be 105 and normally someone's going to be outside in the afternoon during that heat doing really heavy physical labor, 
um, unless it's absolutely required, you may have to adjust your work activities that day in order to address that as an example. And again, as I mentioned earlier, many times think uh, people think of acclimatization as something maybe someone new comes to the workplace from another location that's cooler. But don't forget, when someone's taking time off work, you can lose the ability or the, that acclimatization you have in as little as one week. So when you start looking at people taking extended vacations in the summer months, be thoughtful about what you're going to do when they come back to work. And the more that they get comfortable on knowing those signs and symptoms, we can be proactive before the scenario escalates to a much more impactful health outcome. Just one little part I'd like to add is the accumulation of heat is kind of a compounding thing. Let's say that we have our employees out there and it's 110 degrees this afternoon. They you know, go back to wherever it is they sleep and then they come back the next morning. It's not like a full reset. A lot of times it takes a couple of days for that heat to really dissipate out of their system. So, you know, that's one of the things we like to pay attention to is, you know, if we're going to have consistently days where we're in the extremely high temperatures, maybe we need to think about rotating employees out of working into those areas uh, directly, or at the very least, ensure that they have a highly cool area to sleep at at night to make sure that they're bringing that temperature down. The other thing I wanted to touch on is just remember that, we're, you know, we, we tend to focus on the outdoor activities, but we do need to make sure that we're looking at those indoor activities as well. Uh, and that's why OSHA included those industries within that whole pattern of kind of what they were picking. You know, we can think of things such as loading docks, right? Uh, technically an indoor area, but you're working inside of a truck that's sitting out in the sun, beating down on there. I remember working at uh, Mervyn's when I was younger and, you know, it'd be 90 degrees out and that truck gets up to 105 inside. And so we're pouring sweat inside. Um, you can think of other jobs, like, for example, a simple example would be Les Schwab Tire, right? Those guys are kind of half in, half out, but they're working around vehicles that are running. The temperatures are increasing inside those facilities. They're moving around. They're lifting things. All of those things can play a part in, you know, how they react to those environments. And then the other things I'd like to just touch on is just make sure that, you know, we're not just focusing on training supervisors. We need to train those employees as well. They need to be able to identify that their coworker standing next to them is not doing all right and that they're having these signs and symptoms and they also need to be trained on how to you know how to recover from that you know what do they do do they run over to a supervisor and say hey i think this guy's having a heat problem or do they go and immediately put them in the shade turn the ac on put them in the truck get them drinking water and get them fully recovered so just some things to think about as you guys move forward with your heat and injury illness prevention programs well john steve thank you so much for your input on this i appreciate it um, I know I would have appreciated a similar type standard back when I was doing pipe fitting and plumbing back in my 20s in the Central Valley in the summer. I can remember uh, some tough days there. But um, to our listeners, I'd like to thank you for being on. If there's anything that you think we can do, whether it has to do with heat illness or any other risk management or safety management topics, uh, you can contact us directly at riskcontrolatalliant.com. And we'll get back to you as soon as possible, or just give your broker a call and uh, they'll put you in touch with us. Thank you today. And we look forward to talking to you sometime soon. Thank you for listening. And for more information, go to www.alliant.com.